please pronounce your name correctly for me? Certainly. It's Michael Kirchhoff. Now, you do lots of different things. Could you give me a little rundown on all the variety of uh, different ways you have your hand in the photographic arts world? Uh, uh, let's see. That's a long list that keeps getting longer now, apparently. First and foremost, I am a photographer. I used to kind of list all of the things that I do on like social media, and then I basically just change it to photographer and advocate of the photographic arts because I've seemed to encompass everything. But I am a photographer first and foremost. I shoot commercially, though less now than I used to, which is perfectly fine with me. And then I have a fine art photography side, which I love and nurture as much as possible. I try to be a big part of the community as much as possible, locally, regionally, nationally, and worldwide. After that, I am the editor-in-chief of Analog Forever magazine, which is a magazine strictly for the analog photographic arts, um, but it's not a purist publication by any means. Then I also started a website. It's basically a blog. It's an interview website called Catalyst Interviews. And do something similar to what you're doing, only it's, they're all in written form. It's not a, it's, there's no video or audio or anything like that. And I interview photographers about their creative process. What is it they do and why they do it, which I clearly you're interested in as well. Well, that's debatable. Ah. <laughs> I mean, the creative process, we, all of us, we, we can wax on poetically about this and that for, as many hours as anybody asks us to, but like in the end, uh, to a certain extent, I, uh, I feel like we all just want to know, like, how are you making things successful? You know, kind of like, mm-hmm. how are you making sales or finding clients or, you know, getting paid for whatever you need to do, you know, whatever you need to do kind of thing. Like the, the creative process, I find like, you know, I feel like I don't need to hear other people's creative processes, though, of course they mm-hmm. influence me, of course, but but I don't think that that's sort of the most important thing <laughs> many right. times. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe that's where we differ because I think you use the term success. You know, everybody has a different meaning behind that. You know, what, how do we define success? It is a very subjective word, correct. Right. And I know that, you know, one of the things that people gravitate to is the, is the financial success of it, whether or not you can sustain yourself in the thing that you are most passionate about. And that's, of course, the hardest thing for anybody to do, I think. But I think in discussing the creative process, it kind of forms a narrative of how that person got to be their form of success or their form of being successful. Well, and also success changes. Like I have joked that like my original form of success was uh, having a retrospective at the Guggenheim when I was 50 years old. That would have been a <laughs> successful career to me. Sure. Now, I'm 48 years old, so that's not happening. But well, there's still time. You know, as I've gotten older, like, yeah, maybe maybe I was just wrong on the 60-year thing. Maybe it would be when I'm 80. But the, <laughs> the, the idea of success, like, for me, changes over time. Like, these days, I'm, and maybe I've lowered my standards, as a previous guest has said, which is, might be true. But I really just want time, money, and space to do my work. So I want to have enough time 
enough money and enough space. Now, I'm not saying I want to, you know, live in a mansion and, and never work, but I just want to be able to have time, space, and money to devote to my work without having to worry about it. Mm. That makes sense. It's a good list of things <laughs> to cover. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree that if you have, if you have all of those things, then I would consider you to be wildly successful. Me too. Yeah. I don't have all, I don't actually have any of those things yet, but I want all uh, of those things. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, certainly I think that I consider myself successful in the fact that when I look back over my career thus far, I realize that everything that I have from a home to a vehicle to insurance and cameras, everything that I kind of desired and really needed have all come to me through photography, through the work of photography from a financial standpoint, and also from a personal standpoint, you know, how does photography feed your soul? Especially lately, that has become more true than ever before. Uh, because I get to have my hands in so many different aspects of photography. I'm never bored. Time management is actually a huge problem. And I think that that's probably a good problem for anybody to have, especially in the creative arts, no matter what you're doing. Wait, you're never bored? No, no, no. You should have seen me uh, frantically trying to get a few things done before we even started this conversation. <laughs> and as soon as we're done, I got a list sitting here next to me of things I need to try to get done today. Uh, and they're all photographic related. Oh, don't kid yourself. I have tons of lists of many, many things I should do, but boy, I am a very good procrastinator. <laughs> oh, yeah. I used to be worse. I'm getting better. And the thing that makes me better is taking on all of the different aspects of what I do. Like I was kind of listing the things that I did. If I didn't do those things, then I would probably procrastinate more. And, you know, if I had more time to work solely on my own photography, I would probably find myself you know, with my nose and my phone playing some random video game or something, you know, to, to kind of uh, distract myself from the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, that sounds about right for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you didn't. Okay, yeah, you didn't get to your last thing with one twelve publishing. You you didn't oh, get to right. that one. Uh, yeah, that last thing was uh, Blue Mitchell over at one twelve publishing. They do Diffusion Magazine, and he runs a very solid website that's a great resource for finding beautiful and interesting and creative photography to look at. And he had needed help kind of filling that space. So I volunteered myself when I knew that I had very little time. I still volunteered myself because A, he's a great person and I wanted to help. And B, I was interested i gave myself another aspect of to what i do that was similar to what i was doing for the other ent entities of analog forever and catalyst interviews he allowed me to start my own column called traverse and it's basically what i've been doing with the other you know website and publication in that i'm featuring photographers that i find who do great work the only difference with this one with traverse is that None of the photographers can be from the United States. I'm only looking for people who in different countries and trying to find the kind of common thread that we all share, even though our societies and our cultures may be 
different, in some cases, wildly different, and, and in some cases, not so much. But it just, it kind of just broadened my reach as far as communicating with other creatives. And it was something that I'm interested in because I love to travel as well. One of the things I would do when I would travel is I would often go to A, museums and galleries, but B, also try to reach out and meet with other photographers in other countries and do like you know what we're doing now and have a conversation about what it is that we do and enjoy that yeah i noticed that you were in prague a couple of years ago yeah i've been there five times now i think over the years yeah it's changed quite a bit it's still in some ways it's the same in many in more ways it's it's different now but i've always found it to be one of my favorite cities on the planet i don't know how you feel about it but um i mean i i would consider you very fortunate to be able to live there it has its pros and cons just like any other city really yeah i'm sure <laughs> so something i often wonder about people though is like how did you get started with in the creative industries and the creative field in general so like were your parents creative like how did you even find the creative field i wouldn't say that my parents were creative but they to a certain degree, nurtured my interest in the creative arts that I kind of sort of discovered on my own and sort of discovered through the help of my father. Not that he, I don't think that he really had intended for that to happen. He had two big interests in life and one was history and the other one was taking family photos. So I got a I guess you would consider it a brownie camera. It took like the 126 format cartridge film that you would pop into the back. So film loading was very easy, especially for a kid. And this is when I was maybe seven years old. So I would kind of join in on the family photos when traveling or, you know, hanging out in the backyard or, you know, throwing a baseball around or whatever. I remember always enjoying getting the photographs back and looking through them the very first time. and. It was a very magical experience, you know, and it's, it's an experience that a lot of people have had over the years. And I don't know that that necessarily drew me in to seek it out as a profession at all, but it definitely piqued my interest. Now, did you go after childhood and all that? Did you go on for education? Because like I was looking through your CV and I didn't see where you went. No, wait, I know where you went to school. You went to the Brooks Institute. I did. I did. I did not stay on. There were some issues that I had. But I, actually, I'll kind of lead up to that because I think going back to what I was saying before about how, you know, my father got me a, a camera when I was very young, the thing that really set me off and got me in, interested in photography as kind of a creative outlet was uh, when Polaroid uh, issued the uh, SX-70 camera that, you know, the folding camera with the brown leatherette and it spit out those little photographs with the, that they came pre-framed. And that was something that I was, you know, immediately interested in. And my father was very angry at me often because I would use up all of the film when he wasn't paying attention. So he would go to want to go make a photograph and there would be no film left. So, <laughs> And it was never cheap. No, it wasn't. No. Uh, and of course, I was a child. I didn't know. By this time, I think I was probably like 10, 11 years old. And in fact, I found not so long ago a photograph that I had 
made while I was in Palm Springs. We used to go on vacation there every year for like a week or two. That was the one chance my mom really loved it there. And my father was always more than happy to kind of make her happy and uh, take the family there. So I had photographed a sunset and, you know, the camera didn't have any real controls. So it's a little bit blurry or shaky rather, but the colors are very saturated and very beautiful. And for some reason, I think this is when I was maybe 12, I had the presence of mind to title it at the bottom and date it similar to what we would do now in the fine art photography realm where you, you know, you title and you sign and you edition your photographs. So at 12 years old, I, for some reason, I did that. I've never found another photograph like that, that I, where I had done that. But I realized that kind of the aesthetic behind that photograph when I was 12, being instant film and being kind of shaky and surreal and subdued and, and completely imperfect. That is the aesthetic that I still maintain to this day. So in all of those years, I have not grown in any way. <laughs> I still kind of create photographs. I don't think most of us have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it was just an inherent thing in me to, to make photographs in that way and love it enough to put my stamp of approval on it by titling it and dating it. Okay, first of all, I want to know, what you, what did you title it? It says Sunset in Palm Springs, and it was, I, when was the date? I think it was probably 1979, I think. Yeah, maybe 78. I can't remember now. I'd have to find it. I have a scan of it somewhere, too. But How old are you? <laughs> uh, I'm 54. Okay, so we're approximately the same age. That's fine. 55 is around the corner. So double nickels. Yeah, I got 50 coming up on me soon. So, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, but I always joke with people that I said, no matter how old I get, I still have the mind of a 12-year-old. Oh, absolutely. I can, my wife constantly asks me <laughs> if she's married to a 14-year-old. And I'm like, yes, you are. What's <laughs> yeah, What was yeah. the question? <laughs> of course You're you right, are. Right, exactly. And, I don't, and that's something I don't want to lose. So... No, for me, it's a point of pride because I feel like all too often we all, you know, in the creative industries, we get into it because we kind of want to keep that childlike wonder and that sort of investigation and learning and all this. And after a while, a lot of us sort of just hunker down into, well, it's my job and like, oh, I have to do it or I have a style and I have to mm -hmm. keep with that. And they sort of lose that sort of fun and joy and thrill of the process. And I personally am trying my hardest to keep it. Yeah, that's definitely a struggle I think a lot of people go through, you know, and it sometimes it comes and goes. I can honestly say, I mean, there was a point in time where I was shooting commercially so often that I was just, I was burned out and I was waking up in the morning and realizing I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And it, honestly, it wasn't until I started concentrating more on personal work that became my fine artwork that I kind of regained that love and that interest in the medium. Um, and that's in his sense, not gone away. You know, it, there are def definitely times where I don't feel like working on photographs, but the feeling does eventually always come back. You know, it, there's just give and take with it like anything else. Well, and it's a hard balance because I mean, generally those things, like you were saying, commercial work, like they make a lot of money generally. 
and mm-hmm. versus the fine art choice to go down that path. But oftentimes, like I rarely ever hear of people saying, my commercial work inspires me. <laughs> like it, it, right. it doesn't. <laughs> it, it generally like crushes your soul is what it does. So it's that hard balance of you want to make more money because you, either you need it for your family or you feel like it gives you some sense of security or whatever kind of thing it is. But on the other hand, you know, you're, you're not living your sort of happiest life. Like I have this debate going back and forth with my wife because she's an accountant. So she's all about making more money and I'm all about Mm -hmm. trying to live a happy life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. I totally get that. I would rather be like, let's say less, a less affluent, uh, but happy than rich and unhappy. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Without a doubt. I can't even fathom any other mindset you know i know it exists but i just those are the people i don't yeah i hope my children can become rich off of my like estate and all that that's fine i'm good with that but i I, you know it's just my choice in my life yeah i mean if other people can follow in your footsteps and benefit from the work that you've done then all the better certainly i think from my perspective i'm like incredibly selfish in that regard (laughs) because that really kind of is about my own happiness, because I honestly, I don't think that I can be there for anybody else or help anybody else be happy if I'm not already in that in that way myself. Like I have to have kind of a, a positive outlook going on at any given time for me to kind of share myself, which sounds sounds horrible, but, <laughs> but for me to share myself with other people in any kind of positive way, I have to be like extra positive. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. I can't fake it. I totally can relate. I completely understand. I mean, it's just generally hard to be there and supportive and everything and loving for other people if you're not feeling it yourself. I get it totally. I mean, it's even comes down to like when you're at an art opening or something and somebody else has a really magnificent show, while on the one hand, I'm incredibly you know happy for them and proud of them for putting on a great show. There's always that underlying like slight envy <laughs> that they were able to put right. off such an amazing show. And it's just like, fuck what am i missing yeah yeah i'm the same way yeah you're right the words fuck that guy come through my head immediately but at the same time you're thrilled for them but you think well why can't i like why can't i have that right now and honestly it's it, it boils down to how much effort are you willing to put into it because it has to be you caring enough about your own work to put it out there you know, you're going to be your best fan and nobody's going to do it for you, honestly. Yes. Now I have a great set of questions based around that for you because you are a practicing artist, much like myself, and you have what, let's see, one, two, three part-time jobs, at least. I'm sure you have something else you do as well that you're not telling me about and that's fine. But okay. So for your personal work, how are you getting it out there? Because like, I mean, there's so many competitions, so many open calls, so many, all these kinds of things. Like what are some of the ways that you find, or even portfolio reviews? What, you know, what ways have you found to be sort of uh, achieving some sort of level of sort of exhibiting and or opportunities? Honestly, I think the, the biggest catalyst for getting the work out there is making personal connections with the people who want to see the work. I always tell people 
like when I'm doing a portfolio review for somebody else, or I'm talking in front of like a college class or something, I always tell people that your audience is out there. It's just up to you to find them. They're not going to simply find you. You have to go looking for them. When I first started looking to have a gallery exhibition or sell work or be in a magazine, the connections that I made at portfolio reviews in general were the strongest that I had ever made. There's a lot of personal attributes that go into selling yourself as a fine art photographer. A lot of people will say they won't buy a photograph from somebody who they don't already like as a person as well, or somebody who conducts themselves in a, in a not necessarily professional manner, but in, in a way that you find endearing or positive. So portfolio reviews A and B is the local community, the local photographic community. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, so we have a very strong photographic community here. And there are a lot of cities in the United States and around the world that do, some more than others. But there's usually some sort of community-minded group that will kind of take you in under their wing and help share information and hopefully provide some opportunities or at least point you in the right direction. Um, and that's something that I got here in Los Angeles. There were a few portfolio reviews that I did early on, especially one year. I mean, I think back in like 2011, I had done a portfolio review at Photo Lucida in Portland, Oregon. And I was showing work and it was very well received. I, I, there was definitely one that wasn't, but by and large, I feel like that was when I kind of not made it, but I was kind of accepted to a certain degree. And people kind of took notice. And over time, I nurtured those relationships. And those are the things that led to exhibitions and publications and sort of, quote unquote, knowing the movers and shakers in the field. Because it's both a big community and a small community. And there are all of those people kind of talk to one another. And I found that if you connected well with a certain gallerist, that person isn't always going to keep that information about you to themselves. They're going to have discussions with other gallerists and curators and, you know, whether there's somebody who works in a museum or just a small local gallery, they'll share that information and immediately kind of get traction that way as well. And it, it, it snowballs. It's a slow moving, slow moving train, but it happens. If you persevere and you stick with it, it comes about. Without a doubt. And I always tell people that. I always, especially students, people who are just starting out, because it's a daunting process. Well, it's a decades long process because some of those relationships take a very long time to build up. And it's hard, though, because there's also the nature of like sometimes people live in cities that don't have those like local support networks and they have to do things like travel to these portfolio reviews, which is very costly and time consuming and all that to do them. I mean, I've done them and the amount of money I put into them and the amount of time I put into it, it I don't I you know I haven't gotten a sort of you know at least even just compensated kind of like equal amount of money returned but I'm really oh, horrible sure. well and it's also mostly my fault because I'm really horrible with keeping connections I'm great with making connections I can meet lots of people mm -hmm. I'm a great social butterfly but building those connections and, and sort of nurturing them over time is definitely one of my biggest weaknesses and I don't know how to get past it because I'm often thinking it's one of two things. Either I'm too friendly 
<laughs> you know, like, like buddy, buddy, let's go out for a beer or smoke mm-hmm. a bowl or whatever, or I'm too right. professional. And the, so like either way I, the, I seem to turn people off and, and I can't find that good balance, which is, is that sort of just sincere, earnest appreciation for each other's work and what each other does. I'm really bad at that. And I, and, and I think a lot of artists are. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you kind of have to marry those, like the professional in you and the, the partier in you, right? They, you have to kind of engage those things together and present them to others when you're talking about your art or you're sharing your art or you're seeking out the acceptance from somebody who wants to show your art. I think that your personality as a person plays a really large role in the fine arts. And that goes for everything from how you speak to how you dress to uh, how you present your work uh, in, a, in a professional realm. So kind of going back to talking about community and making those connections during those portfolio reviews, I think that that's also one of the reasons why I started kind of sharing other people's work. I was always fascinated with other people's work as well. So I wanted to be able to a learn from it you know again the selfish part of me is it's kind of a free education so i can learn from it and i can share it and that becomes another connection that gets nurtured over time and all of those things they have a way of coming back around i mean i have a really good example is when i woke up this morning i received an email from a journalist in indianapolis and i was asked to be on a radio show that talks about analog photography and the referral came from a photographer who i haven't seen in i don't even know eight or nine years maybe 10 years and somebody who i've really only had a few interactions with but he knows what i do and i know what he does and i my name popped into his head and it became it's now was now an opportunity so it's something that it was a connection that i made years ago but the opportunities present themselves now, years later. And, and I think that that will continue to happen. And being able, like, again, I'm really fortunate to be able to kind of work both sides of the table, so to speak, by being an artist, but also being somebody who is somewhat of a curator and publishing work of others. So making those connections and nurturing them kind of go hand in hand. It's interesting because, I mean, doing portfolio reviews, I, I do portfolio reviews, but I do them anonymously through Lens Culture. Um, and it's like I've done like th- over 3,500 portfolio reviews that way, whereas you're doing them sort of oh. over the table face to face. And so people get to know you. And it's mm-hmm. a very different situation. But like I think that those portfolio reviews often are great, though I have to admit I did them when I was on the side of the presenting side really poorly Mm -hmm. because uh, yeah i don't even want to get into what i did wrong but i did lots of things wrong (laughs) so but so like from your side so being on both sides of the table like what are some ideas of like how to do it well or how to do it or or what are some things that we often as creatives do wrong i think really the only thing wrong is not to be fully prepared and i think in order to be prepared it's not just about having the work but it's how do you present the work do you have an elevator pitch can you speak about your own work in a coherent way that is going to interest people 
Is there a personal story behind it? And then also doing the research to be prepared is important as well. Nowadays, there are plenty of kind of talks and pseudo workshops about preparing for a portfolio review. You know, there are some people do it for free and some people you have to pay a fee or 30 bucks to do an hour with a photographer who is really good at it and can help you, you know, put your best foot forward. So, you know, it's like anything else. Like you have to be a salesperson. So you kind of have to dress the part. Thankfully, as an artist, you can be completely insane with how you dress the part and get away with it. Um, it's not like the business world where you have to wear a suit and tie. Personality comes into play and professionalism and just having your ducks in a row, really. Well, you brought up a point that you, you said the personal story behind something. And I, this is something that I've often run into recently. It seems like it's a more prevalent issue or, or interest, I guess, in the industry is that, you know, series of works, it doesn't even matter what format, whether it's photography or painting or whatever, but the, they, they seem to want to be, have some more relatable personal connections and less sort of high-minded academic and institutional kind of like philosophical thing behind them. They seem to want to be able to be relate to them. Right. And it, yeah, there are different factions to all of it. And uh, a business field, there, there's, are going to be those who are only going to take you seriously because maybe you have an MFA and because you can kind of speak to the work from a very academic, high-minded way. Honestly, that's, that's not me. And I've definitely tried. I've tried approaching people who are wildly academic, and I am not, and try to sell myself to them. And sometimes I'm mildly successful. And sometimes I'm just, I just crash and burn because I don't have that kind of thinking that, that they're looking for. Yeah. I am academic. I mean, I'm a professor. Uh, actually, I recently got yeah. promoted, promoted to the rank of professor and I am a professor. Congratulations. And I, I, I can't thank you. I cannot stand that whole academic bullshit. Like I hate it in academia when I have to write these kinds of things where I have to like, use all these pompous words and philosophical blah, blah, blahs. <laughs> they, they drive me fucking nuts because the thing is, is nobody in the world really cares except for the people in academia. Those kinds of things are basically created just for academia. Academia and they have no place outside of it, really. You know, because when right. it comes to like making a living or having an exhibition or doing all these kinds of things, like it's really about whether the, the work is good, not about how it can be academically broken down and, and sort of, you know, deconstructed in some esoteric way and all this bullshit. And it's really hard because the majority of creative people are not in academia. And so, you know, the idea that academia somehow rules the arts industry, I find very unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, that's part of the problem because, I, I mean, if you think about it, did anybody ask Ansel Adams to see his, uh, you know, MFA credentials in order to give him a show or no, he, like you just go out and do it and do it the best way you can. And, you know, like I said, you, about finding your audience. Maybe those people aren't your audience and you have to just, you have to just move on. Go talk to the people that are 
smoking cigarettes behind the store and swearing and wearing the motorhead t-shirt, you know, because those are the people that I gravitate to. And, and I will say, I'll be a portfolio reviewer who shows up at a portfolio review to look at other people's work wearing that motorhead t-shirt. And now I just let people know who I am right from the get-go. You saw me on camera earlier when we first started this whole thing. You know, I have long hair and I'm inevitably when I'm at a portfolio review and I'm around other reviewers, the length of my hair becomes a topic of discussion. And I always think that it's really funny because it really has, has nothing to do with reviewing portfolios, looking at work, finding work, talking about it, or selling myself as a photographer. But it's that personal aspect that people will remember and want to discuss and if that's how somebody remembers me, well, that's fine. That's, I don't care. But again, I, that's where I think you really stand out. It isn't the degree that you have. It's who you are as a person. You know, I think that's what the arts are all about is creativity, you know, it crosses all spectrums. So you, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I get it. It actually gets me a little bit worked up because I, I can't understand that. The MFA crowd, an MFA crowd only wants to look at people, people's work who also have an MFA. I just find that very restrictive. And like, why would you want to narrow your audience down so severely? It's just, it's just ridiculous to me. Yeah. We'll come back to the MFA thing in a second, but it's funny because you talked about how people are addressed at these things. And it's, I went to two portfolio reviews, one in um, Portugal and one in Slovakia as a person being reviewed. So my work was being reviewed and I was there and there were awards at both of them. And it was always the person that either just like dressed very normal, nonchalantly, or was outrageously dressed that, that sort of ended up being the one that connected with the reviewers the most. Like me, I come from a generation and my parents sort of, you know, raised me to like dress up nice for an interview and all that and very professional. And mm -hmm. I think realistically, like hearing these kinds of things, I'm like, shit, maybe I didn't show enough of who I am. And I put on a fake facade by like dressing up like it was a job interview. And maybe that actually hurt my opportunities as well. I'm, I, I'll tell you, through this podcast, I have learned so many things that I have done wrong in my career. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. And that's I mean, and honestly, though, that I think that there's, you know, a lot of benefit in that. I mean, you, you obviously, hindsight is 2020, and talking about things like that with other people are going to make you realize those things that much sooner but you do kind of think well i wish i could go back and do that over again but at least you have the knowledge now to not have it happen again hopefully from this point forward you'll let people know who you are from the get-go because putting on that facade at the beginning is i think it becomes disingenuous the people are going to find out who you are whether you like it or not you know if you got that job <laughs> Just to be clear, I was not like in a suit and tie or anything. I mean, I still was wearing like all right. black and all this kind of stuff, but still. Right. But I'm, I mean, I think about a, a job interview, you know, if, if you were going into banking or something like that. No, I was not dressed like that. But I mean, I've seen people show up at portfolio reviews like that, like very just completely put together. And, you know, if that's who you are, that's great. If you can keep it up. 
but I think most people can't. If it's fake, uh, if it's a facade, you're not going to be able to keep it up 24-7. And if you're going to continue showing up at portfolio reviews and you are going to eventually get that show, people are going to realize who you really are. And people talk, you know, they all, they all kind of compare notes. And I think you just have to be yourself the whole, you know, the whole way through. And like I said, like, like I can't fake it. If I'm not really into it, I'm just not going to, I'm not even going to show up. And honestly, showing up is half the battle. Yeah, no, I can absolutely fake it. Yeah, I was I was raised in Washington D.C. and my father's a priest, so like you know, oh, I wow. had to like put on a nice facade at the church, and then of course going to the thing you know political things in in D.C. Growing up, I had to put on a nice facade and be nice and pleasant because I was not only at a political whatever, but I was also the representative of my father's congregation kind of bullshit so yeah no facades uh, that's not a problem but the problem is that i i do that too much probably <laughs> yeah I, I probably so <laughs> but that's my problem yeah well let's talk about you for a minute um, sure yeah okay no problem well i mean hell i had i had a nice stretch in there of a, being a drug addict i've had all kinds of different things traveled around the world blah 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 i mean i have all kinds of things where i'm not sure if i'm running towards something or running away from something but you know that's sort of my career yeah well honestly i think we're all kind of doing both of those things you know and the funny thing is most of that happens internally uh, you know, I can't say that I don't lie awake at night sometimes thinking, like, the fuck am I going to do next week when this bill comes up and I have to, you know, come up with the money to pay it. Or I have some sort of, in, you know, important interview with somebody who I don't think is going to like me or, you know, like I worry about things like that all of the time. But it's internal and I don't often share those things with my significant other or like, I, I feel like I don't want to burden other people with my problems. So I just kind of keep my mouth shut about them all of the time. And maybe that's me faking it then, but I internalize a lot of that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I think that's something that's kind of common in the arts too. You know, I think that, you know, mental health and depression come into play more often than people think. Yes. And I've spoken at length on this podcast about the fact that like to even get up and like do this podcast, I do a nice mix of Xanax and caffeine pill to be able to do this. So the <laughs> Xanax relaxes me, but the caffeine pill focuses mm -hmm. me. So like without doing it, there are literally episodes where I can be like, oh, that's one where I didn't have any Xanax or that's an episode where I didn't have a caffeine pill that like, you can tell. Hmm. Right. Well, you sound pretty put together to me. And you got a great radio voice, so. Thank you. I got that from my father, you know, the priest. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, mental health, I mean, I, I, we all suffer from some form of it, I believe. I mean, period. I'm not saying just creative people. I mean, everybody suffers from some form of something or other. And, and in the right. creative fields, it's, it's sadly not talked about enough. We are internalized things. Like I'm completely an anxious person. Like I'm always nervous and anxious mm -hmm. about everything. I mean, every time I get on here to do a podcast, I'm always like, oh my God, 
what the fuck am I going to ask this person? Because a lot of people don't <laughs> understand. When I started this podcast like three years ago, I used to have literally like a check sheet of questions, like a journalist, basically. Like I'm going to ask uh -huh. these 10 questions. And later on, I was just suddenly like, you know what? It's not interesting. It, it's more like just an interview. And I wanted it to be more of a conversation and be very organic and natural. Literally, when I start the podcast, I have a blank piece of paper in front of me with just your name at the mm -hmm. top of the paper and that's it and and then i just hope that you, the the guest is interesting enough to like lead me down a path of some interesting topics and because uh, otherwise i got nothing right yeah no i agree and i it's funny because i do my share of interviewing people as well and i often well a i there's a certain amount of research that you need to do ahead of time just to you know you kind of want to know your subject at least a little bit to to so that you can connect with them and, and maybe, at least for me, I have kind of a small checklist of not necessarily questions all the time, but topics uh, that I think apply to that person. So you kind of let those topics out and then you just kind of have the conversation and see how it goes. And it's never going to go the way you think it's going to either. I, I, I've, you know, I've done these before and, you know, I'll have a two hour conversation with somebody and then I'll finish it and I'll leave and I'll go out and I'll talk to my girlfriend. And she said, what did you talk about? And I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what I just said to this person. And then I'm afraid to go back and listen to it when it finally comes out. Because I think, oh, God, did I put my foot in my mouth? Or what did, <laughs> what did I say wrong? Did I lie? What did I do wrong? <laughs> but that's the insecure part person in me. Absolutely. But I mean, that and that issue of... Uh, like it's like a fine line like did i lie or did i like embellish a story or did i even tell somebody else's ah. story as my own story like that's the one that i always wonder like right. did i just tell an anecdote that's actually somebody else's anecdote as though it was mine yeah i had a friend that used to do that all of the time he would when we would go out amongst you know would be amongst friends he would tell a story that he heard from somebody else and he would tell it like he was there at the time. And I would look at him sometimes and I'd be like, dude, you, why are you, why are you telling this story? You weren't even there. <laughs> and he, sometimes he would look at me like, Oh, that's right. Like he would just kind of imagine himself as part of the story. And then when he, he would retell somebody else's story, he would magically be a part of the whole, the whole scenario. Well, some people are such good storytellers that I feel like I'm part of the story. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Yeah, maybe that's how he saw it. But I was I always thought it was the strangest thing that he would do that. Like anything, you don't remember how you might have told that story or, like you said, how you might have embellished it. So over the years, I would like it, the story changes every single time. So, and you usually they become grander than they ever were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you've told the story so many times that you think it's your story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've convinced, and I, and it's it's funny. I, I don't know that I've ever really done that, but I know that I've kind of in my head thought about it. Like, oh yeah, there was that time that this happened, and I, oh wait, I wasn't really there. I heard it from this guy. So. Indeed. All right, let's get back to the MFA thing. Now, I'm assuming by your position on MFAs that you do not have one. Is that correct? No, I do not. Don't get me wrong. My position on MFAs is basically if in the the there are only two reasons to get an MFA. 
these days, which is one, mm-hmm. if you want to teach, that's very clear cut right. one there. Or two, if you sort of want to be part of a peer connection group, specifically what I'm thinking of is like the Yale painting group, you know, kind of thing. Like if you want to make mm-hmm. a, a peer group, uh, that those are the only two reasons to get an MFA. Short of that, I, I don't see the reason for, especially with the price of it in the United States these days. Right. And I think that's honestly, lately, that's become a bigger issue than ever before, but just the cost behind it. And, you know, are you going to get enough out of it to kind of cover that cost? Is it going to be worth it to you? And I think year after year, that percentage, you know, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm still paying off my student loan. Right. So, oh, and like, actually, and that's something that we had touched on before, like when I was going to Brooks Institute, I didn't finish because I didn't have enough money to finish. And I had my issues with the school and how they were teaching, not just me, but everybody. And it got to a point, you know, it was a, it's a trade, it was a trade school. They don't exist anymore. But they had to make money off of their students. I mean, that's how they needed to survive. And in the end, they did it. They did that so poorly that they went out of business. So how that really came to fruition, I'm not sure because I left long, long ago. It got to a point where I thought, well, okay, I don't have the money to pay for this out of pocket anymore. Do I want to get student loans? And do I want to go in debt to a school for education that I don't think I'm getting it? It's not coming through well enough for me or a lot of people that I would see. And do I want to be paying for this years from now? And just completely disgruntled about the fact that I stayed longer than I thought I should have. And the answer was just no. I mean, now it was just time to leave. And I just decided to go out and kind of do it on my own. I took the information that I had at that point, And I knew that I had to make a living. I couldn't stay in school. And I couldn't do both. I couldn't, I couldn't afford to make a living and stay in school enough to, to make it work. At least not for me. Some people can do that. I couldn't. I adopted the learn by doing method and saw, I started assisting, uh, photographers in San Francisco. I I left Santa Barbara and I moved to Santa uh, San Francisco with my girlfriend at the time. She was kind of in the same boat and we just started working. And thankfully, you know, through fate and good luck, uh, I met up with some some good people who were still friends of mine to this day. Those connections have paid off over time. So it was definitely the right decision for me to make back then. So to think about doing that now, there's even less chance that I would ever do that. Although I will say that I did look into recently the idea of going back to school online and maybe achieving some sort of a degree only because I thought, well, maybe at some point I do want to teach. But I realized I'm not going to stick with it long enough to be able to teach at any kind of a, you know, you know, I'm not going to get a mat. I'm not going to get an MFA. It's just not going to happen. And I'm, I'm not the kind of person to, to get one, to make that happen for myself. Oh, and it's not for everybody because, because one of the things that no. I have a pet peeve about with the MFA programs is MFA programs often end up being people who become art teachers. So it doesn't even matter which discipline, mm-hmm. 
But one of the things that the MFA programs does not teach is how to teach. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I always thought was kind of unusual too. Cause I, you know, over the years I've, you know, I've known some people who they've entered into an MFA program and they've graduated. Some of them will kind of just turn around and they'll start teaching immediately. And it just seems very odd to me that you wouldn't take all of that information that you got and put it into play. You didn't do anything kind of practical with it. This is going to sound really horrible. You turned around and now you're regurgitating that information into the minds of other people when the experience of being a photographer or working in photography didn't go beyond the schooling that you went through or the limited personal work that you made um, because you haven't interacted with others. You haven't been a team member or a team player or a problem solver. I mean, ultimately, especially in like the commercial industry, you have to be a problem solver. And how do you then turn around and mold the minds of the future of photography when you haven't experienced any of those things yourself? I know some really smart people who have very little education. And I know some really dumb people who have miles of education. But like anything else, there's exceptions to every rule. I do know some people who have an MFA, and they're absolutely wonderful people. So it's not fair of me to kind of just blanket, put it down. It's like, oh, yeah, no, MFAs are stupid. Like, I can't, I can't say that. I just, I can say that they're not for me. But and I can say that I don't think that they are for a lot of people. And like, more so now than ever before. But my problem has always just been the standoffishness that I would get occasionally from people from the academic side of things. You know, it's it's like a little click, right? It's like, oh, you're not, I'm sorry, you're not smart enough or you're not good enough to be in our, in our club. And I just think that's just ridiculous. It, it happens even within the academic worlds because like, uh, art historians are very snobby against art practitioners. And then, you know, technology-based practitioners are very snobby against traditional-based type people. So, like, the clickiness is everywhere. Unfortunately, it doesn't uh, – it's not just an in or out group as far as in academia or out of academia. Even within academia, they're quite snobby and bitchy. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I just can't wrap my head around that. Like I said, I always go back to like when I was talking about doing, you know, showing my work in portfolio reviews and then turning around and doing portfolio reviews for other people. Like it's about community. I think you want to embrace as many people and as many ideas as possible. So to exclude a group of people for one reason or another is just, I just, I just don't get it. Well, but see, I could point that back at you because you, you choose to do things only with people who use analog processes. So you're excluding all the digital people. No, actually, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and honestly, that's a, that's a, I actually get that a lot. Like when I do the portfolio reviews, somebody will inevitably show me their work and they'll say, oh, well, I didn't shoot any on this, any of this on film, but I just thought I'd talk to you anyway. And I'm like, dude, I, like I'm not only about film or analog processes. That's just one segment of what I do because it's such a big part of what I do. People just make that assumption. Yes, I might 
the bulk of my work on film. You know, I own all kinds of digital cameras and I know how to use all of them. And I know how to use the computer programs that support them and, you know, use the biggest digital, you know, biggest file out of the most expensive digital back. And how do, how do you make that work and how do you apply it? They're, to me, they're all just tools and you just have to pick the tool for the job. That's all, you know, you don't, if it requires a, a screwdriver, you don't use a hammer, you know, you just use the, use the right tool for what you need to do. So I have to embrace all of those things because again, because I do so many different things, like I don't have a choice. Like I gotta, I gotta learn how to use all of that stuff. And some things I fall behind on and other things I don't. So again, these are all, those are all opportunities that you can take. So I try to take as many as I possibly can or as many as I have time for. Well, I mean, within that though, like, so when it comes to your personal work, so you generally shoot with analog, do you do your own like silver gelatin or alternative process printing and, or, you know, when you're doing Polaroid, do you like sell or exhibit the originals or do you scan them and, and show or sell prints? Like what's your sort of workflow and, and exhibition and sales sort of process for working with analog film and or digital processes? Uh, well, personally, it depends on the work. So I can say to a certain degree, it's all of those things. And it's changed over the years. I definitely embrace the digital side of things, even though, I mean, obviously, when I started, there was no such thing as digital photography. I kind of have uh, the mindset, mindset of it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, you know, that kind of workflow is always going to probably be a part of me, but I definitely had to embrace the digital side of things. And at this point now, things being a, a hybrid situation are more common than ever before. And that's kind of where I am now. That's why I say I don't try to profess just an analog way and or just a digital way. It has to me, it has to be a hybrid situation. And I think that that just presents opportunities because again, those are more tools at your disposal. So I predominantly still am using original Polaroid materials from the original Polaroid Corporation, not what Polaroid is now, because it's a completely different thing. And all of those materials are expired. They often don't work. They produce a print or a negative that almost always has some sort of inherent flaw to it. But that's who I am and that's how the kind of the work that I present as an artist that works for me. I love that part of it and I embrace it a hundred percent. That said, I can then take a positive print or uh, a Polaroid negative because the, my favorite types of Polaroid were the ones that also produced a negative as, as well. Um, and again, none of these films are no longer manufactured and haven't been for uh, 15 years now, I think. 14, 15 years. So, but some of that film still works. And it's unfortunate that that's all gone away. There have been attempts at, at trying to recreate it, but it's just, it's just, it's not the same thing. It, it, it can't be. It's impossible. So sometimes I'll just scan a, a print or a negative and I will make addition work out of that. And oftentimes I will show original prints. In fact, there are three Polaroid prints in Nanjing, China right now that are supposed to be part of uh, an exhibition because of COVID that the everything keeps shutting down over there as well as here. 
and uh, and the, the exhibition keeps getting put off. And I'm actually talking with another artist now, who the the conversation occurred over Instagram originally, and then it moved to email. But and now we're sharing work with each other, and I'm looking at a way to kind of possibly do a two person show because she has a similar aesthetic. Her subject matter is different, but her aesthetic is basically the same as mine. So how can we kind of marry these two works together and present an exhibition somewhere that speaks to how we both see the world? And then I, there's some things that I do that, you know, I've done a couple of small documentary projects that aren't on my website currently. Those were done all digital. And I definitely don't spend as much time in the traditional darkroom or doing, you know, historical processes as much as I would like. And again, it's not because I don't want to. It's these days I just, it becomes harder and harder to find the time. I've kind of spread myself a little bit then, and I'm trying to fix that or improve that to a certain degree. I kind of want to do it all. I can't, but I try. Well, I have this memory back from like, I don't know, probably 2010, maybe a little before that, having conversations with people where they asked, like, you know, what do you think is the future of the darkroom print, you know, the silver gelatin print? And I used to say mm -hmm. that I believed it was going to turn into sort of its own fine art form, basically. So, like, the value of a true silver gelatin print will become more sort of elevated in status and, and sort of revered and appreciated more than digital because digital will become the most common thing and therefore the their value will be sort of lesser than a silver gelatin print. Was I right? <laughs> Have you noticed that people are either more appreciative or more willing or more willing to even pay more for your traditional silver gelatin work than your digital prints? The answer is yes and no. So it depends on who you talk to. Because like everything, everybody's got an opinion and everybody's got a preference. And it's all very subjective. I think years ago, there were more people who were only collecting work that was traditional like that. You know, gelatin silver prints or platinum palladium prints, uh, cyanotype, whatever. Whatever kind of historical process. It's so sad that silver gelatin is now referred to as a historical process. But anyways, go on. Right, right. And people, you know, because I still shoot Polaroid, some people have called that alternative or historical. And I just, I have a hard time thinking of it that way. Me too. But I mean, I guess in a certain way it is. But now these days, the archival pigment print has become more accepted than ever before, as it should, I think. But there will always be people that only collect uh, gelatin silver prints, usually just for personal reasons. Um, and there are going to be people who tell you that those are superior to digital prints. And I think in some ways they are, and in some ways maybe not. I think the jury's still out on a lot of this stuff. The way of making digital prints, honestly, I think is still in its infancy. There's still a lot of improvement that can be made. But at the same time, great steps have been made over the last several years to make it a viable art form of itself. It's funny that you kind of bring it up because two days from now, I'm going to be in, in a, a panel discussion. It's an online panel discussion for a group in Helsinki, Finland called the Helsinki Darkroom Festival. And it's an association of, of people that 
in in Finland that have a great interest in working in the darkroom and making traditional prints. Part of this, as part of this panel discussion, and as a representative of Analog Forever magazine, we're going to talk about things like that, like like what is what is the uh, what is the status of printing in the darkroom these days? Is it waning or is it increasing? And honestly, I do think it's increasing. I think more than ever before, people are becoming interested in historical processes, alternative processes, and uh, traditional darkroom printing. But at the same time, I think predominantly the reason for that comes from the digital world. And I have two examples. I have one of, one of, is a, one of them is a story of a conversation I had with Melody Bostic in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Of Bostic and Sullivan. She yes. runs Bostic and Sullivan, right? They, they provide chemistry and kits and workshops and teaching to learn how to do cyanotype or platinum palladium or the albumin or any number of process, traditional process. And when the advent of digital came along and that kind of took over the photographic world, everybody, you know, it was the new thing. Everybody wanted to know it and uh, smartphones came about and everybody wanted a smartphone and wanted to just take pictures with their phone. So all of those, all of that attention that they had received before started to decline and they were selling less and less month to month to the point where they could literally see, okay, this is where we, this is the month in the year that we go out of business because it's just, it's no longer sustainable. But then through digital means, the, the, the way to make a really great digital negative came about. I think it was pictorial film. It got to a point, it existed for a, for a short time but it wasn't very good. And then suddenly there was a a product that came out that they started selling and it enabled people to take a photograph from wherever, put it, get it in your computer, insert this film into your printer and make a digital negative that you can now do any of those processes with, especially things like platinum palladium and cyanotype. And now you didn't have to have an original piece of film. You didn't have to pull out your, 11 by 14 Deerdorf and make a portrait with it. You could take a phone with a phone photo, put that in your computer. I'll put it onto this film at 11 by 14 and make a platinum palladium print. And when that happened, their sales went through the roof and now they're doing better than ever before. And so it literally took the digital world for their business to blossom to the point where it is now. And now, because of that interest, they're doing more workshops than ever before. Other people are doing more workshops than ever before. So the popularity is growing in significant ways. Um, And the other thing that kind of has helped usher this in is Instagram. And because when Instagram became wildly popular... All of these other photo apps started to come out. Some of them did specialty things like they would make your photograph look like it was done with wet plate collodion. It would make it look like a tintype of some sort. And those were really, those like millions of people are now downloading those apps and taking pictures of their friends and making them look this way. And 
not knowing that initially that, well, that was, that's based on a real tangible thing, you know, an actual uh, ambrotype or tintype that somebody made in camera with chemistry. You know, they, there wasn't even film. The film was the chemistry. So people start to kind of discover these things, you know, they would show those pictures to their friends. Inevitably, somebody would say, you know, that was a real thing, right? You know, that isn't just an app that didn't come out of somebody's head that came out of a real process. And enough people were like, what? I can actually make this sort of thing. And it got to the point where those people now were, you know, seeking out workshops and 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 ways of making photographs like that and i've seen it happen where somebody has held a tintype for the very first time and it's like this epiphany it's this magical wave that washes over them and they're just like their eyes light up and they're just dumbfounded by this object that they're hold they're holding in their hands and they're immediately sucked in and now a lot of those people are, have turned it around and kind of ditched, you know, smartphone photography. And now they're working, they're on eBay buying large format cameras and lenses and learning the process and building their own dark rooms in their homes and their garages. And they're putting that information to use and making real tangible art. And, you know, again, the start of that often comes from smartphone apps the world has had a enormous benefit to the digital world it started to kill it off and but then is now bringing it back and now like i said there's hybrid processes all of the time people are combining these things you know there's often a digital aspect to much analog work very little of it is kind of purist by degree well, and as far as like being a practitioners, I think that's magnificent and I love it. And I, and I, you know, I hope to get back to it even at some point myself, but the, what I'm wondering about too, is the other side of it. So the, the people collecting, the people buying works, like, are they wanting the silver gelatin and historical prints or, or are they sort of still on the digital print side of, of buying? I think uh, no. A lot of that work is being sold. The, sorry, which work? I'm sorry. The uh, the analog work is really is being embraced more now. But I think it's in part because when you make, for instance, a tintype, you only get one, right? That's an original piece of art. You know, it might as well be a painting that somebody painted with watercolors or something. So it's an addition of one, and. Over the years, we've seen additions become smaller and smaller and smaller. So the smaller the addition, or if it's a, an original piece like a tintype or an original Polaroid print, but those are highly sought after. I mean, they usually command much higher prices. So then that now that becomes the, the hurdle, right? Can I afford to buy that one-of-a-kind object? But the most serious collectors are definitely looking for that kind of work. But by the same token, somebody can make a digital print and say, I'm going to make 30 by 40 prints, and there's only going to be two. Well, now those, you know, scarcity breeds value. So those two prints are going to be very high priced. But when you get into the original works like alternative or historical processes where there's just one, 
oftentimes people will scan that and they'll make a digital equivalent and kind of offer that. But a lot of those artists don't really have much interest in doing that. Once they've made that original piece, they've kind of, they've moved on. They don't have much interest in making a reproduction of it. That always comes from the gallerist. You know, they're the ones, if I can only make money off of one, well, that's no good. I'd like to make money off of 10. So, and the, you know, the artist is going to benefit as well, but you have, as, as if you can make, if, you know, if you're transparent about how it is that this print came about, that it's a digital reproduction of an original piece and somebody loves it enough to spend that kind of money on it. Well, then that's great. But the original is definitely always going to be the most valuable part. Well, the idea of additions, I mean, I just recently had a conversation with um, Peter Hay Halpert about the, the issue of like the history of how editioning evening got created in the first place in photography. And it's a fascinating background of the whole scenario. But the whole idea of editions, it, it's it's changed a lot. Like, I mean, I remember the days when editions were 50, 100, 250, and now I'm seeing editions mm -hmm. of three, five, seven. I mean, what's changed in the industry other than sort of this encouragement towards exclusivity and scarcity that has made it so that artists are, or specifically photographers are making much, much shorter editions? If you think about it, you're right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know some people that when they started out, that's what they were doing. Their editions were anywhere from 100 to 250. But if you think about it, are you ever going to sell 100 prints of anything that you do? And if you do, it's going to take so many years for that to happen. You're going to continuously make new art. So oh, hopefully, so you kind of move on a little bit from the idea of making a whole lot of prints of any one thing. Um, and also the, these, these days you could have an edition of 10, but you don't have to make all 10 right away. It used to be when you would do, you know, if you had an edition of 50 and you were doing gelatin silver printing and it was 1985, you would probably make all 50 of those prints and they'd be sitting in the drawer. I still have a number of those. <laughs> yeah, I do too. But nowadays, if I print something digitally, it's more of a print-on-demand sort of thing. And personally, for me, I kind of treat it as going into the dark room again. So I will often kind of tweak or change things a little bit differently. I've changed papers over the years, whereas a print might have been offered on type A paper. Well, now it's offered on type B because now I found something that I like a little bit better it's essentially the same image, but there are differences. If you hold them side by side, there are going to be subtle differences. Just like if you were making traditional darkroom prints, if you're doing burning and dodging, there's probably going to be some subtle differences that are occurring in there. So I like kind of making the prints evolve over time and, and change. So, you know, yes, they're in an addition and technically you want something to be consistent, but at the same time, I like the idea of it always being a little bit different and unique in its own way. Okay, wait, you brought something up earlier. You talked about pigment prints. I, I'm, I think I may be mm -hmm. a little bit uh, out of date on all this. Like, is a pigment print the same as an inkjet print, or is there something actually different, or did they just come up with a new word? Well, both, I guess. You can say they're all 
inkjet prints because the types of printers that spit them out are known as inkjet printers. We don't call them pigment printers, but ink that you use has changed. It's now pigment form. It's like, you know, the chemical makeup of those inks now is far more archival than it was even five years ago. And especially 10, 15 years ago, I made some digital prints many, many years ago that the inks that made them up are not inherently stable. So they've either faded or changed color or kind of morphed in one way or another so that the print is not exactly the same or not even close to being the same as what it was when I first made it. But the prints that I make now are far more stable and they are ideally they're going to look the same six months from now as they will 60 years from now. So, and that's what you want. I mean, you you want kind of, you want to try to maintain as high of a museum standard as possible. So making them archival, well, that's what the pigment prints are. They're just basically more archival. It is a different word, but it's, but they are, they are truly different. Okay. But I'm so not into the whole archival thing. I I was raised in that. I keep saying I was raised. I I was taught that in school, like that everything should be as archival as possible until I found out about like the Starnes twins and all that stuff. And I'm just like, now I'm just (laughs) like, you know, I mean, archivalness is great if you can afford it and if you can garner the price of like you know when you try and sell a truly archival print uh i'm thinking silver Mm -hmm. gelatin at this point i mean they're expensive to produce and therefore you're gonna have to charge a lot it's sort of like i'm more of the like Degas kind of like i'll paint on some cardboard if that's all i have to work on so like I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's the question of like how important really is those like archival processes. I mean, my teachers were all about archival, 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 everything, even down to like the sleeves we hold our negatives in. But to a certain extent, like, does it really matter? Like, it shouldn't it be more about like what your your creative idea is, what your creative expression is, rather than did you put the money and the time and the effort into making all your processes archival? Um, yeah, I think. Well, again. my answer is always kind of both so but i'll give you my reason for saying this not once in any sale i have ever done of my artwork in my entire career has any buyer ever asked me if i was using archival processes ever oh okay i have been asked that okay we'll see this is where we differ i've i've never had that experience right but sometimes it doesn't come down to the collector when that decision is made because there are processes that some photographers are doing that there is no way to preserve it. I mean, there are people who make things like anthotypes. They, once that's made, if it's exposed to any amount of light, it's going to gradually fade and none of them are going to be around a hundred years from now. It's not, I don't even know that it's physically impossible because there's no way to, fix the image onto the paper it's just inherent in the process so you keep them in a box or you keep them in a drawer i've seen people exhibit them on a gallery but they're behind like a black velvet curtain which is kind of cool because now it's an experience you're not just looking at a print you become part of the experience so you actually have to walk up and draw back the little velvet curtains and look at, and then, oh, I can examine the print. And then when you're done, you close the curtains back up because 
that amount, that little bit of light that you just let in at a chemical level faded that print just a little bit, probably not to the point where you're ever going to notice. But if that happens a thousand times, yeah, you probably will notice. So the more you exhibit them, the more you show them, the less time that they're going to be around. So the archival standards for something like that, you know, that just goes out the door. So again, it kind of depends on the person making the work and the type of work that they're making. If their work speaks to the passage of time, then, you know, what better way to illustrate that than to create an artwork that's not going to last up to the passage of time? Yeah, I've definitely grown into that sort of ethos more than the purest traditional archival stuff. But I also think that like my teachers sort of maybe beat it into me too hard. So now I'm rebelling against Mm -hmm. it. I think my interest in doing things archivally, if I was a purist when it came to, to making things archival, then I probably would never make any kind of digital print, pigment print or not. I mean, I deal with work of an imperfect nature. So if it, and again, I, like I said, like when I make my prints, I kind of make them a little bit different. If a print changes a little bit over time, I'm okay with that because I'm not going to be around long enough to see it really change and leaving behind a legacy of work that's going to be enjoyed for generations. It's probably still going to happen, but I mean, I have kind of a, (laughs) I have a a dim view of, of what's going to happen to the planet in general in the future. So I don't know that anybody's going to be looking at my prints a thousand years from now, because I don't know that this planet's going to exist a thousand years from now, but that's just my, you know, horrible, fatalist way of looking at at life. Yeah, that's a whole different podcast. I hope I'm Let's wrong. not go down that path. Right, exactly. But that's kind of, you know, that's, you know, that speaks to my state of mind and, and how I make work. So, and like I said, everybody's an individual when, when it comes to making work. So when it comes to archival standards, I guess there are rules, but like with everything else, rules were made to be broken. So um, if... If you don't subscribe to that, that's completely fine. You know, have a reason for it, but you can't just say, oh, I don't care about archival standards. You know, if it's how you learned or it's how you were raised and uh, you just don't have an interest in it, well, that's fine. You know, but maybe somebody won't buy your print because of it. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know how often that would, that really does happen. Another mistake I've made in my career. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. No. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, you know, even sketch artists, like what about the paper that a sketch artist uses or the type of pencil or pen that they use? Like, are they using a Sharpie or are they using something with some sort of, again, archival ink that's going to last for generations? If you really love the art and you have a personal connection to it and you have the money to pay for it, you don't care. You don't care if it's going to be around 100 years from now. You're going to buy it and put it on your wall anyway. I should hope so. You know? But unfortunately, that's not always true with all collectors. True. Yeah. Just to be clear, I want to be clear, though, about my archival position. I'm not against archival processes. I just feel like there's a bit of an obsession with it. And I believe it's a bit of a, a sort of overblown obsession with it, specifically in the photographic medium. Right. Uh, well, and I think. Again, it depends on who you're talking to. If you want to sell things that are going to be in a museum collection, 
then that might come up. You know, I like I think a lot of museums are, are only going to want things that are going to stand the test of time because, you know, they're going to want to display them whenever they Unless can. you're Doug and Mike Starnes. Right. <laughs> True. Always the outliers. Different. Yeah, there's exceptions to every rule. So I just think embracing all aspects, making that your aesthetic for me, for me. That's that's kind of what I'm about. I try, you know, I guess adopt a friendlier, more positive, more engaged and welcoming attitude to all of it as much as I can. I don't want to exclude anybody for any reason that really isn't, you know, like why why would you want to exclude anybody from anything that you do? I would rather embrace in it than exclude. And I guess that's just part of who I am as both as a person and as an artist. So if I were to do, go out and buy a photographic print, I would, a fiber-based print would be my number one fiber-based silver, silver gelatin. My number two would be a digital print on a nice, you know, Hammond mule or a beautiful Epson paper. And then my last would be some sort of plastic RC print. Mm-hmm. Right. If you had the same image on all three of those, you would see a difference in quality. And I think you would put them in the same order by their quality as well. You know, they think that that RC print's not going to look as good as the fiber-based print or as good as the inkjet print. And the inkjet print's probably not going to look as good as the silver gelatin. But then again, the silver gelatin's not going to look as good as the platinum palladium print because maybe the, now, you, now you get even deeper tones. Yeah, I should have put platinum palladium at the top. That's my number one. Right. <laughs> then number two being fiber based right. print. But platinum and palladium, I'll put in there with you know Van Dyke Brown, cyanotype, et cetera, platinum palladium, and then fiber based silver gelatin. <laughs> ah, okay. Boy, we're getting really pedantic. We have a rating system now. I do. I, I absolutely do. But I mean <laughs> even, but within those but I could even get it like even more pedantic and, and minuscule on the whole thing because if that alternative process so your cyanotype van dyke brown or, or platinum palladium was done on a particular paper so like you know done on a mm-hmm. reeves bfk or some sort of you know fabriano paper i'm gonna i'd be willing more to buy that than if it was done on a, a tissue paper or something that i know is basically not an archival paper i know i'm being hypocritical <laughs> right. at this point yeah yeah i mean i don't know it's, again it's up to the artist i think to to choose the material if the images you want to make you put on a toilet paper or what you want to make. And there's a reason for it, but there's intention behind it. Then go ahead, put your images on toilet paper. And I bet you'll be able to find somebody that'll still want to buy it. Well, see, you just touched on, I think what, what the most important part of, I think all of this conversation is, is that like, no matter what decisions you make, whether to use, uh, you know, expired Polaroid film, plastic cameras, digital cameras, archival processes in your printing process, as long as it has a reason and has some sort of connection to the purpose of the work, I feel like that's the most important aspect of it. Yes. Yeah. And there are plenty of people that get into wet plate collodion because they fall in love with the process and how it looks. But, and the, sometimes they'll make a body of work that like, well, did you, was that the best way to make the images? I don't know. I mean, it becomes a, a, a topic of discussion. Sometimes I think that there's good reason for it, and sometimes there's not. So, And it's funny because the longer I do this, the more I realize over time 
how my own aesthetic and reasons for doing things have come about. And so now I can kind of look back and, and speak to that a little bit better than I than I did even a few years ago. Because you get to a point where you, oh, I realize that I choose an imperfect way of making photographs because I view myself as an imperfect person. And honestly, all people are imperfect to a certain degree. But how I apply an image to my intent, it's kind of perfect, but most people aren't going to know it unless I say it out loud. I bring that up because I think only recently have I really realized something about my own photographs and why I choose to make them look the way that they do. I mean, if you were to look at the different bodies of work I've made over time, you'll see that most of them were made with instant film, mostly black and white, positive, negative film. And a lot of them have been made with toy cameras on traditional film like Ilford or Kodak films. And I've come to realize that the images done with Polaroid are more, they're my reality. They're how I kind of see the world in a waking state. And my toy camera images are how I see the world from a dream state. To a certain degree, I think I've always known that, but it hasn't been something that I've really kind of talked about until recently, or really kind of examined. You know, we were talking about mental health earlier, and certainly aging comes into the topic as well, because the older I get, the more I kind of, I have the, I have the benefit of the years to be able to look at my past and draw some probably more refined conclusions than I did when I was younger. The aging process and my, my own lack of archivability becomes an issue. So if that makes any sense at all, I don't even know. It does. I mean, the issue of like also just like getting older and stuff. Like I was talking with a photographer, uh, Jock Sturges, way back in the beginning of the podcast, like I mean, that isn't like episodes, early episodes. And he was talking about how he mm -hmm. believed that his best work is behind him at this point because he's getting older for sure. And it, it's sort of, I, mm -hmm. I often wonder like, you know, what will each of us be known for in time? So like, maybe we're not known for anything right now, but like at the end of our lives kind of thing, like when people look back over our careers, I often wonder like, what will be the things that will define our entire careers? And he believes, it seems to believe it's his younger work. And, and I wonder mm -hmm. whether or not we're, we're necessarily making our better work when we're older, because in the old days it was, you know, age comes wisdom and knowledge and, and the ability to sort of be more uh, introspective and more thoughtful and all that. But it seems like, youth is being uh, more elevated and more admired these days. And so I wonder whether it's the, the works we made in our youth or the works we're going to make later in our lives that are going to be the sort of stronger, more prominent works uh, looking back over our careers. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you think about it, you know, when you were younger, you didn't have as much fear as you do now. And honestly, I think the younger generation these days, as opposed to when we were younger, they probably have more fear than we did back then because the world has become a smaller place. And I honestly, I think a little bit more of a, a dangerous place, but then there I go going back into my kind of fatalist view of, <laughs> of the future. So, um, 
now, you know, as you get older, you can kind of look back on your years and you realize all of the things that you did because you didn't have fear. You acted oftentimes in a much more impetuous way. And you think, how the hell did I even get through those years? You know, how do I, how am I even still breathing now? Because, you know, I think about all of the stupid shit that I did when I was younger, you know, not even as an artist, just as a person. And I think, fuck, I'm lucky. (laughs) I'm lucky I'm still around. So. Oh yeah. I should have died at least three times in my life. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So. Honestly, and that's how I kind of see everything that I do now. Like, I think, you know what? I made it this far. It's all gravy now. As long as I can remain enthusiastic about it, I've won the battle or maybe even the war. I don't know. And maybe that's how I would choose to be remembered. Not even necessarily for the work that I've made, but for the person that I've become or try to become at least. And that's somebody who is engaged and enthusiastic about what it is that they're doing. I attribute that thinking to my father because he was the one that had always said to me, like, when you get older and when you choose a profession, you know, do what you love as your life's work and that will take you as far as you can go. Like, that's the definition of success. Are you happy doing what it is that you're doing day in and day out? And I can honestly say at this point in my life, I definitely am. And even if nobody ever bought another one of my prints, at this point in my life, I could give a shit because I've already, I already feel like I've won. I already feel like it's all gravy from here on out. And if I can spread that kind of love around a little bit, then, uh, then all of the better because if I can help other people kind of get to that point as well, then I, I, I see that all as another success. It's difficult because we all want sort of quote unquote success, whatever our individual definition of that is. But there is also that point of like, you really should enjoy whatever it is you do. Like I have a long story that I've told before on the podcast, so I'm not going to tell it again, but in the end it ended up basically me looking at a bunch of people and just being like in, in Washington, DC, a bunch of bureaucrats going to their government jobs and just being like, I never want that job. I never want to work a job where I like drag myself kicking and screaming to a job dressed in a suit carrying a briefcase and like having to do it kind of thing like i have tried my best in my life to to, you know make my life into something where like even if some of the 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 things that we do whether it's you know having to find clients or or trying to find you know submit to things that are difficult and tedious and all these kinds of things that we all have to do you know grant submissions residency submissions whatever I still enjoy it more than almost any other profession I could fall into. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I feel the same way. Am I as enthusiastic as I always have been about it? Or am I going to get to a point where maybe I don't want to do this? Because yeah, even as enthusiastic as I am, there are days that are hard. But will I get to a point where I don't want to do it at all anymore? And I think, well, okay, maybe I will. Well, what should I do? And I can't think of a single, can't think of a single thing that I that I would do where I could be as enthusiastic or I could bring myself to do. Because, like I said, if like if my heart isn't in it, I like I just can't, I can't fake it, I just can't do it. 
you know, I know people who are fully engaged in the art world, but they're also in finance. But I can't, the thought of getting up in the morning and putting on a suit and tie and going to a, a bank or something and sitting behind a desk and talking to people about loans and things like that. How do you do that? I don't know that I could learn to do that. You know, I'd sooner be homeless than I would, would do that. So hopefully that won't ever happen. Yeah, my wife constantly asks me, like, well, what are you going to do when you retire? And I'm like, what's this retire thing you speak of? I expect to die <laughs> yeah. either in the studio or in the classroom or whatever. Like, I, there's no, to me, I did not picture any sort of stopping point other than death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought about that too. Like, well, the, the only thing that would cause me to kind of retire is if I couldn't physically do something. If I couldn't physically do something, I would find a different way to do it. Like, you, you, you know, we're all yeah. problem solvers. Exactly. Yeah, oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I don't know that, you know, oh, when I turn 65, I'm, uh, can I collect Social Security now, if it's still around? Can I collect Social Security and, and live off of that? Well, then I think, well, what am I going to do? Sit around and watch TV? I don't, I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. Indeed. I want to be, again, I want to be engaged in what I'm doing. Any last things you want to sort of share, uh, some advice, some encouragement, whatever, to other practitioners out there? The only thing that I would say is the thing that I always tell students when I've spoken at some colleges many times and I put it into thing, you know, like PowerPoint presentations and I've said it out loud over and over again that perseverance is key. You're not going to consider yourself successful. You're not going to get your work in front of a specific curator. You're not going to learn the process that you're interested in unless you continue to work at it. If you give up at any point in time, you're done. Like if you're just dead in the water, you have to keep moving forward. And that's kind of something that I have always adopted on a day-to-day -day basis in my own life that I always have to take one forward step every single day. If I end my day in a worse state than I began it, then I've kind of lost. So it can be something that's very simple. It could be. Did I send the email to the magazine publisher that had some JPEGs in it showing them my work? You know, did I make that cold call? Did I make a print today? Did I work on an image in Photoshop today? I have to keep moving forward because, I mean, like a shark, if, if a shark stops swimming, it dies. So I need to keep swimming because if I stop, I'm going to die too. I just can't. Like, I have to keep going. Um, because there is no other option. So I always tell students that perseverance is key. Marvelous. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah. And today, today was a big step forward. I mean, this is great. I, there's almost nothing other than making art, having discussions with like-minded people is among my most favorite things to do. So I appreciate you reaching out and I appreciate the time to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Good, good. I would hate for it to not be.
Thank you for listening to the entire episode. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anybody with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website at wisefoolpod.com.